Hey, how's it going? Um, I'm in the same room again. And while I was setting up the all of the, I don't know, there's like this big panel thing in front of me with all of these switches and I don't know what any of them do. But while I was doing that, as I was about to record this introduction, I realized that I'm here by myself. Um, well, I guess you're here now, right? Um, and that's pretty weird. Don't you think? Like, I don't know. I don't know who you are right now. Like maybe you're a friend or something and you're listening and like, maybe I know you, but like, I don't know where you are. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in your life, but you're hearing my voice. And I think, I think about this pretty often. Um, and it's pretty strange. Like, I think I really love the podcast platform because of the convenience and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoy producing this. Um, and I, I like that I'm alone, but at the same time, like, it's very strange speaking into what feels like this void um, that is just at some stage going to be accessed by someone. And then, yeah. Um, anyway, that's what I think about in my spare time. What do you think about? Tell me. Send me an email, please. Anyway, hello again. Um, today, this is the fourth interview. Um, and today I spoke with... Oh, hey, before I jump into that, if you don't know what the show's about... Um, and if you've made it this far and you don't know what the show's about, that's pretty funny. And I hope you think I'm also funny. Um, and if you want to know what the show's actually about, you should go and listen to the intro thing that I've posted. And you should go and listen to that because there it's only a few minutes long and I'll kind of tell you what I hope to do with this show. Um, it's pretty formal. I think I was, I made it pretty formal, but I think I want it to be pretty formal. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, anyway, today, fourth episode, fourth interview, fourth conversation, I spoke with Adrienne Stone, and Adrienne is a professor of law at the University of Melbourne, and she has lots and lots of titles, her title is so long, and I made a joke about that, and she laughed, which I thought was pretty funny, um, and yeah, she co-authors the Oxford Handbook to Freedom of Speech, and I haven't even co-authored my name, like my parents did that, that's a joke, so you should laugh. Um, yeah, and with Adrienne, I spoke about freedom of speech, obviously. I spoke about academic freedom, Julian Assange, deplatforming, um, and, you know, the important question of where we should draw the line in terms of policing or not policing what people say. Um, yeah, and I think that's something very important to think about in, you know, in the context of social media. Like, we have incredible freedom and access to so many people by posting and sharing things um and yeah in the context of you know an ever-changing world we need to ask ourselves how much should we be entitled to say how much should we be allowed to say should there be boundaries that are defined by someone else um and yeah these are the kinds of questions that uh adrian and i discussed um so yeah thanks for listening um, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, my guest today is Professor Adrian Stone, who holds a chair at the Melbourne Law School, where she is also a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Laureate Fellow. This is the only thing that I actually have written down because the introduction is so long, so you're so decorated with, with all these. Oh, just say one thing. Don't one say thing. it all, please. Okay, yeah, okay. Well, maybe, maybe we'll end it. And there, um, yeah, that's enough. Okay, okay. So welcome, Adrian. Th- thanks so much Thank for coming you. on board. 
Um, and how are you today? You made it just before the rain has come. Yes, um, I'm just, as you can it's, see. Quite, uh, it's quite a windy day. It's nice to be in a cosy radio studio talking about freedom of speech. So let's begin by talking about, so what were we saying before? We we're talking about how, uh, what the role of freedom of speech is or what the role of academic freedom is in a university and how students are to understand their responsibility as scholars and what. Yeah, so let me just backtrack a little bit and say that, you know, I've been a scholar of freedom of speech for a long time. Yep. And one debate that I'm constantly drawn into and which is very, very live at the moment are debates around academic freedom and freedom of speech on campus. So one of the things that I've really been trying to, um, one way in which I want to direct the public debate about this if I can is to suggest that we actually ought to think about those two things quite differently. And the way I think about it is to think about what a university is. Right. And I want to say that a university is at least two things. It's probably more than that, but there's at least two things that it is. And one of them, and perhaps the core and central one, is it's an institution for the advancement and dissemination of knowledge through research and right. learning and teaching and publishing those activities. Now, what I would say is that academic freedom is the freedom that arises for those who are engaged in that activity if they're engaged in teaching and learning to be able to conduct those activities without undue interference so that they can be independent scholars teachers and learners that's the best way we think to get at knowledge and to disseminate knowledge at the same time i want to say universities are also really important institutions of civil society and they are way they are very important forums for public debate generally and I think that we should think about there being, um, we, we, when we think about free speech on campus, we're thinking about the university's role as, a, as an institution of civil society. Right. So what we have to do is take those two ideas of what the university are, and they give rise to these two related ideas, academic freedom and freedom of speech, and think about how they relate to each other. Right. Okay. And why is it that the university is different from other institutions? Let's say, you know, a church or... Um, another body is is there something special that the university does that can't be done elsewhere or is there a particular type of expertise that mm. is um, only available or should only be trusted when it comes out of a university space yeah so when we when we end as academics or as the university community we say we have academic freedom it's right. a claim for a special privilege right, right? And I think if we're going to claim that, we need to justify it. Right. And the way I would justify it is to say that universities are engaged in a search for knowledge. Right. But not just a search for knowledge, because there are other institutions that do that too. But universities specifically are engaged in a search, and search for knowledge in quite a bounded way. It's right. not an unconstrained way. We're bounded by the disciplines of which we're part. And so academic inquiry is free inquiry within disciplinary constraints. So... As um, an academic at the law school, I'm not free mm. to simply decide that I want to pursue a non-academic agenda in my classes and in right. my, my writing. I don't have a um, I don't have a right to say that I ought to be able to do that. I have a lot of freedom to pursue my discipline. Right now, it's those disciplinary constraints which I think give rise to the special role of universities and their special role in the production and dissemination of knowledge. 
and it's those which justify academic freedom. Right. So academic freedom is a, is a bounded kind of freedom. It operates within those constraints. Okay. Can I just say one other thing? Yeah. There are other institutions that are also looking to advance knowledge. Mm. Um, journalism, the press is one of them. Mm. But notice that the press also claim to have a certain kind of press freedom Yeah, right. right. that uh, protects their role. And I'm absolutely happy with that, mm. I think. But it's tailored towards the internal understanding of that profession and the way that they ought to behave in order to properly produce knowledge. Academic freedom is about the special role of the universities. Right, and it's very important to understand these as separate categories. We should not conflate freedom of press with academic freedom. That's right, right. that's right. Okay. Um, and, and to be quite conscious about when we're asserting, say, a right to speak or inquire in a certain kind of way, what is it the basis on which that we claim that we have this special privilege to be free from certain kinds of restraints? And um, is it academic freedom or, or are we asking something else? Because sometimes all of us on campus are engaged not so much in the dissemination of uh, knowledge through teaching and learning, but we're engaged in the kind of public discourse that we do as citizens right and i think that we have free speech rights then too um but they're different from our academic freedom rights and sometimes i think and we ought to be clear that if we're engaging in the kind of public discourse that ordinary citizens engage in universities are important for us forum for that to occur but we're asserting a different kind of right and i think that they'll look a bit different depending on what they are right okay um and I, I'm actually not familiar, like I, I don't think, I had a brief look at the university's kind of, you know, like academic freedom policy stuff and yeah. like there was a lot of information out there. How does, like when do they say no? To what kind of research do they say no? When, and like can the government interfere? Can, um, you know, can Scott Morrison be like, no, no more research on, <laughs> <laughs> we don't need any more. Yeah, uh, okay. So, um uh, so it's difficult me, to, for me to, to, to speak across the whole university right, in the right. room. But let me just say, you know, ordinarily, for example, as a professor in the law school, I can research whatever I want wow. as long as I'm doing legal research. That's great. Um, and that is great <laughs> and that's what you should do. it. And, and it's the beauty of academic life. Mm. I mean, it's, wow, it's why it's, in my view, like the best job in the entire universe is because you have the intellectual freedom. Mm. Um but it's a freedom to do research. Right. Now, as a practical matter, I don't want to be um, naive about it. There are constraints. Um, there are constraints that arise from um, things like the availability of funding. You know, certain topics just are more fundable than others. Right. Certain topics are more rewarded than others. There are all kinds of things that are internal to the discipline that can kind of skew uh, the way research is and makes sort of research certainly much more popular, much easier to do. Um, and, and I think that that's a somewhat um, par for the course. What worries me much more, and which does happen sometimes, is if a university gets into a funding arrangement right. um, with an outside body, and that outside body might then seek to try to um, uh, direct uh, the nature of the research. And you can have a real clash of cultures because you can completely understand why an outside funder think, well, I'm funding you. You can't just go and do anything you want. Mm -hmm. um, so this, you know, of course, is what was at the heart of the many controversies that have surrounded the Ramsey Foundation, mm -hmm. which I, do, I don't know all the detail of, so I'm not sure I want to go into the detail. But at core there, what you need 
is to have academic uh, sorry, it, academic freedom is the freedom that we have as individual academics and, and, and uh, uh, students. Uh, but it can only fr- thrive if there's appropriate institutional autonomy. Right. And there really are some th- some pressures on that. One is the, the arrangements that universities might enter, enter with outside funding. The other one is the political nature of funding through the Australian Research Council. Right. Now, the Australian Research Council, I have to say, is a body from which I have enormous respect. Right. But there was a really unfortunate incident uh, last year where the Minister for Education, Simon Birmingham, chose to intervene individually and just veto certain grants. Right. Now, it, it was... Was um, that personal on grounds of personal preference? Yes, or? on grounds that he thought that these grants, which... To be clear, were grants that had been approved by the Australian Research Council in an incredibly rigorous and searching process that academics across the university know well and spend enormous amounts of time on. They had got through this extremely difficult and competitive process and they were approved and then the, and they were, uh, the minister decided that these were not appropriate topics for research. They were all in the social sciences and humanities. Wow. And that kind of political invention, intervention is, I think, incredibly bad for yeah, academic right. freedom. definitely. It's one thing if the Australian Research Council and the government through the Research Council chooses, as it does do, to set priorities. Mm. And from time to time, it certainly does have these. And when we apply to the Australian Research Council, we have to talk about whether or the extent to which our, our research meets these priorities. And also we have to direct um, part of our application to the national interest and benefit. But then to have a a set of a, a group of um, applications that have gone through all of that and still been approved and then be subject to this kind of capricious intervention, I think was really terrible. Mm. The new education minister, I understand it, has said that he won't um, intervene uh, in that way, or at least not without giving reasons right. and not without being transparent about it. The other problem with the action that occurred last year was it actually only emerged under questioning in the Senate Estimates Committee. So, um, you know, some of our colleagues at Melbourne University discovered that their grants, which had just been denied, actually were denied through this this way. So wow. that's, I mean, I think that's a very significant threat to academic freedom. Um, there is a balance to be had between, you know, understanding that this is public money mm. over which there ought to be some accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the method that we've had for a long time and which I support is to have this uh, in-depth, rigorous, um, broad-based review through the Australian Research Council so it's independent of the yeah, government. Yeah, of course, of course. And that's what I hope uh, we will go back to and I hope that this will be an unfortunate episode that is the last of it, but it's something that, you know, frankly, as universities and all of us as academics need to keep an eye on. Right, and how how is that allowed? Uh, what privilege does the, <clears throat> does the Minister of Education have to you know, stand above the the research commission who decides what and what can and what can't be given funding? Well, just as a matter of law, of course, he's Minister of the Education, so he's in control of the um, Australian Research Council's uh, budget and has ultimate discretion. Right, right, right. So that's legally. Now, it's obviously, I think, to anyone who thinks about it for more than 10 minutes and who really is serious about universities having... Fr- the freedom to engage in open intellectual inquiry, um, it's just, you know, highly problematic for a a minister to do that. Mm. So it was a very significant um, 
constraint on academic freedom that I hope we've seen the last of. Okay. And do you think there needs to be anything, do you think anything needs to be done in terms of legislation or otherwise to prevent this happening in the future? Because what's to say that the current education minister who perhaps, you know, may dislike a particular area that is just has just been granted a bunch of funding to for research to be done in what's to say that they won't just you know do what was once what, what was done previously yeah look i think we have to fight hard for the australian research council right. as a university and academic community right. and we have to fight hard for transparency right. now i suspect transparency and accountability rather than formal legal restraint right, right, right. are going to be the best solutions okay um all right and now now bringing this back to university um so we've spoken about the privilege that, or the privilege or lack thereof that academics have to <laughs> conduct their research. Um, where do students come into this? What can students, uh, so we'll keep this on campus before yeah, moving to sure. the wider discussion of freedom yeah. of speech. Can students write on anything? Can students uh, discuss anything on campus? Um, can and I'll hopefully later get to the topic of deplatforming. But mm. can students, you know, if they want to, if there is a particular society or something that has a um, a member who wants to give a speech on something that's controversial, should right. they be allowed to? Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. Sometimes right. students are engaged in that process of knowledge dissemination and production. Yep. You know, particularly. Um, research students, students that are working in cooperative and collaborative teams, and that I think that they have academic freedom, um, and but it's again to work within certain bounds. So I can't, my PhD student can't tell me that he'd like to write a novel rather than write a dissertation right. on law and claim academic freedom to do it. Okay, <laughs> so we we we're working within a bounded context. Um, now, but that that is not usually the con the context in which student freedom comes up. Now, right. Student freedom usually comes up in the context of freedom, the student's um, freedom to engage in freedom of speech on campus. And, right. and in a sense, they're, they're acting, you know, as citizens um, on the campus and pursuing that aspect of university life, which is about being a, an institution of civil society. So, so how much freedom sh should they have? There've been a lot of controversies about it. Um, and so I want to say a couple of things. And one of things which, which might not be very popular, my view is that freedom of speech on campus is really important, but the predominant value is academic freedom. Right. So that we always have to remember that a university is a special community for teaching and learning. And that while it is important to have a lot of freedom of speech on campus, our question is always going to be, is a given activity consistent with the overall mission of the university. Hmm. Now, the overall mission of the university favours, I think, a very robust open form of public debate on campus. Um, it simply is the case that we want our students to be engaged. To have Do you mean the University of Melbourne or Australian universities? Any, I, I think certainly, well, I think universities globally this right. is their mission but at least let me make the claim okay, about, yeah. about australian <laughs> universities um uh, at least at least universities in liberal democracies <laughs> and and can i just i'm going to add a footnote here one really interesting thing if you want to think about how important universities are to democracies <laughs> is that it's a really key indicator of creeping authoritarianism mm -hmm. when you see attacks on universities so the attacks on universities in places like hungary 
and Poland are, you know, are very much indicative of those societies which are sadly moving from their democracy back into authoritarian societies. And what exactly is happening in Hungary and Poland? Well, let me just tell you that many things, but right. let me tell you a couple of, at least one story. Um, there is a wonderful institution that has existed for some decades in Budapest, uh, the Central European University, uh, which was just a, a um, source of um, really kind of the best liberal education that you could get in Hungary and also attracted students from around the world. And uh, the Fidesz government has uh, effectively shut the university down and right. it's moving, in effect, to Vienna. Wow. So, I mean, that's at an extreme level. Now, I, I don't want to make too much of it. <laughs> Um, because we're nowhere near that here. But we ought to recall what the stakes are here. Universities are institutions that promote the health of democracy yep. and they ought to be protected on that basis. Um, and that's why, you know, I think um, the, how is it that they protect the health of democracy? Well, they do two things. They produce knowledge that we can trust, mm -hmm. that student, that citizens can help inform themselves when they engage in public debates and they produce this class of educated people who have the capacity to engage in an informed way. Now, both of those things require high levels of freedom of speech on campus, but they don't require untrammeled freedom of speech. Mm. So if you think about it, there are sometimes some speakers who come into a university, who might want to come into a university, and they simply have no commitment to the university's values, right? right? Imagine, and this is an example I, I usually give, you know, um, you could pick your favourite cause, but there are some causes, for example, that operate just in clear defiance of the, um, of known facts of science. Uh, should we have them on a university? In general, I think we certainly have no obligation, for example, to allow someone preaching sort of anti-vaccination nonsense or white supremacy or those kinds of things to come on a campus because they're not what a university is about. Yep. And when we say you can't come to the university, we're not saying you can't speak anywhere else. If you're an anti-vaccination protester, you can go and protest on the steps of Parliament House. Mm. What we're saying is our community is a special community, one that has particular values about how knowledge is pursued, and we don't necessarily uh, want to um, – we don't welcome those who operate in flagrant mm. uh, disregard of them. Mm. Now, so that's at the outer edge. I think the harder case is when you have a really controversial speaker right. who's not an academic but who wants to come on campus. Um, they're not an academic. They're wanting to come on campus. What they're saying is not so wholly disreputable as I've suggested but that it might really upset a group of people on the campus. That's the harder case. Mm. right? So what do we do with this? This is the sort of scenario I have in mind is something like the kind of controversy that arose when Bettina Arndt wanted to speak right. on uh, campus uh, in Sydney. Now, look, I think the following things. Number one, actually, much as I think I'm inclined to disagree with everything I've ever heard her say, she should be able to speak on campus. Right. Number two, students should be able to protest yep. and the university has an obligation to make sure that they can right. because those students are exercising their freedom of speech. Mm. And the third thing is this. If there are a group of students who will feel that the holding of a particular event, the airing of certain views on campus 
is particularly difficult for them, then the university ought to engage with those students and understand what would make their lives better. And I think very often the university might need to exercise, use its own voice in support of those students. So for example, if you were to imagine speakers on campus that were not say flagrantly anti-Semitic, but sort of extremely critical of Israel in a way that Jewish students found um, extremely upsetting, I think the university needs to not simply disregard the hurt that those students feel, but to find a way to respond to it. What that response will be depends. And the reason I think that is that I think that universities need to be careful to protect the equality of their students and their capacity to participate in the life of the university. There's a tendency to regard students who object to controversial speakers on campus as snowflakes who (laughs) just don't want their feelings hurt. (laughs) And I just take it much more seriously than that. And I think Mm. universities are places, increasingly I'm happy to say, where people come from all different backgrounds and not everybody has the same sense of belonging. And universities need to take it upon themselves to protect everybody. Right. Um, uh, In an interview that you did with um, the former vice chancellor of the University, Glenn Davis, um, you mentioned that the University of Chicago, uh, before, you know, its new round of undergraduates came, they provided them with the free speech ethos of the university, explaining, Mm. you know, what maybe the values of the university were pertaining to the topic of freedom of speech. Do you think that that is something that the university could do in response to, or, you know, to preempt, um, uh, to kind of, you know, make students aware that the university is a space where there may be challenging ideas? I'm not sure necessarily that we should adopt the Chicago principles, right? right? They're, they're They're particular to that university. But I think what they are an instance of is a university, you know, signaling very clearly what its values are right. and thereby you know, socialising the university community to having a shared understanding of what the university community is. Right. I think we could do that much better. Right. Um, And I simply, I do think that it ought to be part of what um, our students are offered. Um, And and I, by the way, I don't think the university ought to just kind of dictate those (laughs) principles to the students, but ought to engage with them about what they should be. But I absolutely think that we ought to encourage students to understand that they're coming to university, that university will be challenging, um, and that they will uh, need to expect that. They will be able to exercise their own free speech rights in response. But that if they are seriously undermined in some way, that the university will be there to uh, assist or protect them in some way. I think all of those messages need to come across. And I think we oughtn't just expect that we can throw students Mm -hmm. into the, frankly, the melee that, Mm -hmm. you know, university life can be, which Mm -hmm. is a good thing. I like the diversity and robustness of of, um, debate. But I don't think we can simply throw students into it and expect them all immediately to understand Mm. that this is a productive enterprise. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would like to see us do that much better. Right. Um, And going back to to the uh, your previous point about a controversial speaker coming to to Mm -hmm. the campus. Um, So I I had a long chat about my uh, with my housemate about this um, in preparation for the interview. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems so 
we all have different perspectives and we all come from different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, some of us come from families where we're the first members of the family to go to university. Exactly. Some of us come from families where, you know, there have been generations of people going to university. Some yeah. of us come from families where our parents are the vice chancellors of universities. Um, it seems very difficult for a universal rule to be made that applies to all of these different types of people. Um, and in a controversial speaker coming to a campus, I think I, one who is, you know, deeply offensive, perhaps fundamentally um, Islamophobic or anti-Semitic or, um, you know, something that is very horrible, um, it may offend people more than others because of their, well, their, their cultural identity. Yeah. Um, how, how can... I just, yeah, the, the issue that I have, or not the issue, but the challenge that I've identified is that it seems very difficult to to come up with a a clear, universal and fair, uh, I'm, what I mean by fair is something which all university students may feel that they agree with, yeah. system which allows, you know, some people to come to campus and some, some speakers, um, you know, who aren't able to come, uh, to be banned from campus. Um, so I think the conclusion, sorry, this has been a bit confusing the way I've explained it because I think I'm still trying to process it in my head. Um, but the conclusion that I reached is that maybe it, maybe people, maybe students and the university itself have to realize or have to understand that it's, that, you know, regardless of any decision that is reached in terms of who can and who can't come, people are going to be offended. Okay, so a couple of things I want to say. Let me just first be absolutely clear that I think a lot of the worst kind of material that might be bouncing around your head as you think about these, it would just be um, uh, caught by my idea that, you know, really to come onto campus, you ought to at least be making a credible claim. You right. ought to, for example, be uh, mounting arguments that are based on facts, right, right. Yep, um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like pure um, political, provocative political mm. rhetoric mm. that is highly offensive mm. might be something that we could just feel is not appropriate right. for the university community. It can mm. go, go elsewhere, mm. and if people want to hear it, they can go hear it elsewhere. Mm. Uh, but you're right. I mean, this is a difficult question. Mm. And the line between, I mean, I say dangerous nonsense has no right to be on campus, mm. but the line between dangerous nonsense and the deeply unorthodox mm -hmm. is very blurry. Mm. And it's really important that we um, welcome the deeply unorthodox. Mm. And precisely because of that blurry line, I think two things. One, we probably ought to err on the side where it's unclear of allowing the activity on campus because that's the kind of communicate we should be. That's number one. Number two, we need to be realistic and accept that there are going to be in circumstances where the case is difficult to decide and the university might get it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and that we need to have a mechanism to then, you know, have a discussion about that, hear opposing views um, and um, revise our ideas. So, you know, one of the things you learn when you go to law school is that, you know, uh, the idea of a clear, precise rule that can be applied perfectly in every circumstance is almost entirely elusive when you have a really complex mm -hmm. phenomenon like this. So let's, let's get all of those things right. So we can't expect perfection. We will expect hard cases. And I think we probably do need to err on the side of openness on campus in the case where there are hard cases. Mm. 
Um, and so I do think that we are saying to students, yes, look, there might be times when you're made to feel uncomfortable on campus. Sometimes that might just be because you're being educated <laughs> and having your ideas challenged is part of what education is. Sometimes it might be unfair. And if it's unfair, there ought to be ways that we can air this and take this up with the mm. university. Um, and I just think it's going to be an ongoing, difficult process. But we're trying to do something truly amazing at universities, which is to be these incredible institutions, essential to our democracy, that advance learning and which operate as um, you know, engines for increased understanding. Mm. And we can't expect that that's going to be tidy and pretty all the time. Mm. It's going to be difficult, but actually that's one of the great things about university life. Mm. Okay, and so that if there is a speaker who comes on campus whose views or ideas you disagree with, mm. what are you to do? Um, you said before that you know maybe you can write to the university in some form or contact them and you know make them aware of your concerns. But you know, do you deplatform them? Um, do you uh, you know should there be some structure in place whereby you know, their opinion is presented and then there's a question time. Okay. Um, sure. So one thing, there, there are a range of things that we right. can think about doing. One might be the way that, that, that whoever is organising for a speaker to appear on campus ought mm. to be thoughtful about it. Right. And to realise that in certain cases when, but not all cases, in certain cases where there is controversy, mm. that one way to deal with it is to arrange for the presentation of alternative views. Right. Uh, one thing I mentioned in the interview that you speak about is I remember very clearly when I was a graduate student in the United States at Columbia University in New York City, a controversy that arose when Ahmadinejad, who was then the very ruthless uh, ruler of Iran, uh, was invited at a, uh, to, I think, a global leaders forum at the School of International Public Affairs there. And there was a real question about whether he ought to be able to speak on campus. So what happened was is that he did speak on campus and he was introduced by the president, in other words, the vice chancellor of the university, who very sharply challenged him right. about the nature of his regime. Um, and that seems to me to be a kind of best practice model. Right. So that's one way to do it is to incorporate the presentation of alternative ideas mm -hmm. into the event itself. Now, that might not always be appropriate. Um, and not there's not two sides to every question, by the way. Um, but the second thing that students uh, can do, and frankly, I would encourage them to do, is to protest. Protest. And not uh, deplatform. Peacefully. Uh, I, I mean, I really think deplatforming, so, so saying that we ought to not invite someone onto campus mm. is a very rare case. You right. really need, in my view, you'd have to be someone who's just completely outside um, any claim to um, uh, credibility. Right. So, and much of that would be illegal, but flat out white supremacy, Holocaust mm. denial, in fact, are illegal anyway. Mm. But if they weren't, um, anti-vaccination, in my view, falls into that category. Um, although it, there are some, you know, there, which is not to say all, de all debate about vaccination, mm. but certainly there is a, some forms of anti-vaccination um, uh, beliefs which just seem to me to be completely outside. But if you're not in that rare category, no, I think you ought to be deplatformed. Okay. I think rather you ought to be on campus, but that students with opposing views should be seeking to have them incorporated in the event. If right. they're not incorporated in the event, they should absolutely feel free to protest. Right. Um, they shouldn't. They should protest in a way that doesn't dis um, unduly disrupt the event. Um, I don't think 
protesters always have to have perfect manners, but right. I do think, I mean, I do think that they, um, as long as the event can go ahead, that a, that a robust protest is something that we ought to e- accept and it's part of university life. Um, I think that I would hope that university students also through their representative and through the mechanisms that universities have to engage with them would would also engage with the university administration i at the university i think is likely to um at some point have a, a more formal policy on freedom of speech on campus and i hope that that will provide some guidance too right um and i i noticed that in one of the uh an article that you wrote for the conversation yeah. um you spoke about how physical space is very important when it comes to presenting on campus yeah. and that um you know freedom the freedom of speech of a speaker should be more protected in a more public space than it should be in a less public space for example in a residential hall yeah i'm really glad you raised that because i don't think that all places in the university should be treated the same right i said before universities are many things well you know for some students so they're home hmm. um and if we think some students, there's part of the university that's home, there's part of the university where you learn. Mm. And those are vastly different spaces from what I would call the public square of the right. university, which is the, um, uh, uh, the places in which public discourse happens. And I think pretty much everything I've said about uh, freedom of speech on campus is about the university conceived of as the public square. Right. So if you're out there on the lawn, in the amphitheatres, um, that's that's where I think speech is really robust. I think it's really quite different. We wouldn't allow um, an, uh, such a robust form of freedom of expression in a classroom because it would be contrary mm. towards, um, contrary to the academic values. In fact, although my problem in class is normally getting to get students to speak more rather than less <laughs> but um but when we certainly i think need to take a different approach uh to residential colleges i mean the, i think it would be quite different to have a deeply offensive even if otherwise permissible speaker come to your college where right. you live and mm. which is your home mm. um uh, than it is to have them in the public square of the university right. so these things are complex um and the right, the best answers will vary from time to time and place to place. Right. The main thing we need to keep in mind is what kind of a community we are and want to be and what our central goals are. Mm. And that's the way we generate the best answers, I think. Mm. Um, and what happens if a member of... What happens if an academic believes in something that is contrary to all of the you know, the evidence that's been produced by the university. Like, I'm not sure if there are any climate change deniers who are also academics at the University of Melbourne, but um, what what do you do in the instance where a colleague um, or a friend doesn't agree with, you know, what appears to be something that is, I think, you know, Glyn Davis quoted that 97% of scientists believe that climate change is real and human-caused. What do you do to... uh, What do you do with the 3%? The 3%. Okay. I mean, climate science academics who hold deeply unorthodox views are entitled to express them in the course of their teaching and research and publicly. Right. And... So they could run a class if they they could have a class called climate change and they could argue that it's not human-caused and that it's not real if if they have facts, quotation marks. So, um, 
a university uh, and usually a, a department will make decisions right. about what kinds of courses are taught. Right. Uh, but if that that university, uh, if, if that academic is given the task of teaching a course on climate change, then that academic ought to be able to teach that academic's understanding of climate change. Now, disciplines have ways of dealing with mm. this. We have peer review. Mm. We have um, uh, all kinds of ways in which we have developed to do our best job of telling when we're pursuing knowledge and when we're not. Mm. And they're not perfect. They're absolutely not perfect. Uh, but when you have a member of the community who is in good faith pursuing an idea, then they ought to be entitled to do it unless there's some other reason other than just you think they're wrong. Mm. And that is why I have to say I was entirely in sympathy with... Um, uh, a recent decision of the federal court uh, finding unfair dismissal of an academic at James Cook University who was this unorthodox, took these unorthodox views about climate science. Right. Um, I found the idea that oh, quite persuasive that, that that was contrary to his academic freedom. Now, I need to say something important here. One of the things that I think it's important that we don't overemphasise is civility. Right. I think civility is an admirable goal in academic life, but we ought to not to make it a formal requirement in relation to the way we engage with our colleagues. Right. Of course, you, there will be limits. You can't bully. Yep. You can't discriminate. <laughs> You're bound by the general law. You can't defame. But very rigorous civility requirements, and that's what was issued in, in this case, um, uh, are just not appropriate. They might be appropriate in a corporate context where you're all kind of working towards a kind of defined commercial goal. But in a university context where we not only expect, but in fact we need disagreement, we have to understand that sometimes that disagreement will be sharply expressed. And I really think we need to be very careful about requirements for civility of discourse. Right. Having said all of that, I absolutely think that that's the best way to, to um, communicate your ideas. And, and I try whenever I possibly can to be uh, civil with even those I deeply disagree with. I think we ought to model it, just not require it. Right. And that would apply to academics as well as students. Well, I don't think students need to be civil, for example. I don't think we can ask them to be polite, quiet demonstrators. You right, know? Right, if, you, yeah. if you're but that, but that's out in the free speech mm -hmm, context. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think that that is generally right. the case, both across academic freedom and uh, freedom of speech. I do not think that civility is an academic norm. Yeah, right. I don't think it is. Right. I think it's, um, it is um, at best uh, something that we can hope for rather than require. Right. Because it's too easy to abuse. Right, right. Okay, so in the age of... So just to move on from the university sphere. Um, in the age of social media and constant internet uh, connection and the ability to post anything anywhere, anytime, mm -hmm. if that's something that you wish to do, um, where are the limits there? Um, where, do we, where do we draw the line? Okay, so... I think we now need to think about freedom of speech really quite differently. Right. So um, I've been a free speech scholar for a long time. And the way that we normally think about freedom of speech 
is the following. The, the reason we have it is to pursue knowledge, but also because it's sort of important to an autonomous life and because it's important for democracy. And, and there are lots of reasons you can think about why we need freedom of speech to support those goals. But the threat to freedom of speech was usually thought to be government right. censoring us, keeping information from us. So there's this push for freedom of speech. We can get more information out. We can express ourselves. We can understand that what's going on. We can hold governments accountable. I just think the world has now changed. Right. right? So now we have circumstances where... We, every citizen has access to vast quantities of information and every citizen can broadcast their views to the world. So the problem we have now is not information scarcity, but frankly, speech clutter. There's just mm. so much like coming at us <laughs> in a fire hose. And at the same time, the old institutions that we used to rely upon as gatekeepers, like the legacy media, mm. that's broken down. Mm. So we used to have a set of at least relatively trusted media organisations that we would would effectively curate our information for us and we'd get our information through them. Now, that had its risk, but it gave us at least a sort of basically agreed-on set of facts and somewhere we could turn for reliable information. That's gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just impossible now to tell what's true and what's not, and the capacity to produce fake information mm -hmm. is just vastly expanded. So we've got a fire hose of information just coming at it of dubious quality, or at least we can't tell what's good and what's not. Mm -hmm. So governments don't need to, um, if, or anyone, do, if you want to, um, if if you want to. Um, uh, mislead the public you don't need to censor anyone mm. you just flood them with information control the narrative outright lie spread fake news that's the problem mm. and so the um and this is all exacerbated by a final thing which is the nature of um social media platforms, the, what you might think about the speech aggregators. We mm. used to have the gatekeepers who kind of curated it for us, the New York Times and Sydney Morning Herald and the Age were trying to work out what was liable or not and they had internal ethics. But now we have these big media organisations, the Facebooks, Twitter, Instagrams, Googles of the world. And they are motivated quite differently what they actually want to do is keep our attention. Mm. Yeah, we are the, we are the we're, product. We're the product. Yeah. And it's produced what's sometimes called attention scarcity. It's not information scarcity, it's attention scarcity. Mm. Information is cheap, attention is difficult. Mm. So that means that the platforms now have this kind of incentive to make themselves more addictive mm. and also to keep giving us what we want. Mm, mm, mm. And so what we keep getting is more and more people that agree with us until we operate in what's called a filter bubble. Mm, right? Echo chamber, yeah. That's just a completely different um, paradigm from the idea of the citizen um, threatened by the censorious government. In fact, we're overwhelmed and misled. That's the problem. So how do we regulate in that sphere? Like, that's really, really difficult. So what do we do? You know, what do you do about, you know, the tragic live streaming of the Christchurch massacre. So how do we do this? I, I think we have to really go back to basics um, and say, okay, well, if the threat is comes not from government but from private actors, we need to turn our attention from that to the private actors. Mm. I think, secondly, 
we need to we can't just regulate Facebook or Twitter in the way that we might have regulated before. So what we used to do, you know, back in the 90s and before, you basically could, the ways to regulate speech were either to regulate the individual, Mm -hmm. right, sue you for defamation, Mm -hmm. or even more likely, sue the media organisation that facilitated your speech. Can't really do either of those now. It's hard enough. To, who was it? The the speaker is often anonymous, yeah. hard to track down, and speech is transnational. You might yep. find them, but they're off somewhere you can't get them. And you can't really make Facebook liable mm. because they're not in the same way that, say, an old newspaper was curating the yeah, speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just a platform for anyone to come and speak mm. on. So I think we need to think about it quite differently. So here's just a couple of suggestions. One thing that I think we need to do is to actually encourage the growth of an internal set of norms Mm. in uh, kind of the internet community that will lead them to self-regulate. That probably seems hopelessly naive, but actually I think that this is an important part of it because you think about the old media, they very importantly had journalistic standards, Mm. right? And they they didn't come, they, they didn't sort of, come from nowhere they were they weren't always there they were developed over the course of the 19th and the 20th century under public pressure mm. and i think and that that newspapers in order to justify their role and to make claims to the special privileges that they had uh, the professional of journalism began to conceive itself as a profession that had internal standards mm. um, such as protecting your sources mm. such as um you know, acting responsibly with respect to the information and the way it might endanger life. So we just have to now, through public pressure, encourage those large actors in the digital speech economy to start developing that. That's number one, but that's not the whole story. Um, I think we also need to realise that in order to work to get good regulation in this digital economy, there needs to be cooperation between governments and private parties. Because, you know, if you want to regulate speech on Facebook, Facebook has the technical capacity to figure out who it is who's Mm. speaking, where the information is that's coming, what it is, where it's coming from, if they can be Mm. tracked down. It's pretty hard for Mm. them, but their their technical capacity to identify and remove public speech is just, a problematic speech rather, is just much greater than governments. So um, I think that that means there's going to be kind of cooperative forms of regulation. And it's almost like um, Facebook and Google and Twitter have to get their own kind of system of private internal Mm. regulation that government supports and cooperates with. And I don't know how much you follow this, but just recently there was a very important meeting with Jacinda Ardern and the French president, Emmanuel Macron, that produced the Christchurch call. And the Christchurch call is a call for cooperation amongst governments and and these large internet entities um, to work together towards finding a solution. And that seems to me like a really important step in the the right direction. Right. Um, Okay. I've just been thinking about... um about artificial intelligence. Um, and this may seem like a strange link, but I think it is still linked to freedom of speech. Um, so I didn't realize I got rid of Facebook and Instagram a while ago um, in, a, in a statement. Um, <laughs> or is it just too uncool for your generation? Oh, well, I actually, you know, it is kind of trending to, to let go of all of these. Is it? I think so. What's think the so. platform of the moment if you do have one? What are people uh, on? Insta? I think people are on Instagram. Yeah, yeah I think that's okay. a big thing. I think like... 
at least it seems like inner city Melbourne, hmm. Facebook, people have recognized the shortcomings of Facebook in that, um, you know, it, it is kind of just an echo chamber. It does appear to be an echo chamber. You're presented with, you know, the same, with things that you like all hmm. the time. Hmm. Um, this is this is slightly unrelated, um, but I, I, I'm afraid that we're like, we might be running out of time. Sure. Um, but on Instagram, there are accounts that are run by AI robots. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how the posts, are, like whether there is some human intervention in the posts, whether they have to pass through, um, you know, some sort of, you know, hopefully some sort of regulatory body that it sounds like the crisis, the Christchurch call is calling for, mm. some sort of screening or, um, you know, negotiation of the terms or the conditions which have to, you know, underlie every post. There are going to be certain things that can be posted. But, you know, should we attribute the same level of freedom of speech to AI? Should definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely okay. not. Okay. Um, however, I mean, I would generally think that those accounts are speaking on behalf of someone. Right. Somebody's put them in train right. for a reason. Right. And in a sense, they're a representative of that kind of, right. uh, you know, that somebody of that person's freedom of expression. But I think actually, if you think about it, um, speech that's driven by that sort of technology um, is designed to kind of maximise a message, right? That's yep. really what it's about. Um, and I think, you know, the question that we really should ask is, well, what's it in, in service of? Right. Is it really helping with any of the things that we value free speech for? You know, it doesn't really help us kind of live an autonomous life. I don't think it's probably not truth seeking. It's probably not conducive to democracy. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, now I'm going to be a bit controversial. I wouldn't have a problem with a rule, an internal rule on a platform that said, you know, we're not going to allow this kind of, uh, if, if they can, if the technical capacity is there, we're not going to allow this kind of replicating yep. technology that just spreads and spreads the message mm. precisely because of the problem of speech clutter, yep. right? Now, that would be controversial because some people say, well, this is a way the ordinary citizen can speak as loudly and mm. as effectively as the, um, as the um, powerful. Um, but I, I do wonder whether it comes at a great cost. Mm. And we have, to, we have to not forget that, you know, social media platforms have been powerful forces for good sometimes. Um, you know, the use of Twitter during the Arab Spring mm. was really very significant. Mm. Um, the Arab Spring didn't go so well. But um, I think the capacity for the social media platforms to allow people to mobilise is important. Mm. Um, so these are difficult questions, mm. very difficult questions. Mm. Um, and just turning uh, once once more to the uh, to social media and the yeah. ability to post freely, um, do you think that there may be some like an underlying social issue in that people aren't that because of you know the perspectivism I was talking about before, where it seems like we all have. Well, we all do. It, do. it doesn't seem like we all do, but we do have different experiences and preferences and ideas of the way the world should be. Do you think there is some sort of... So, for example, the University of Melbourne, should it have a responsibility to clearly push a particular agenda so as to not, you know, like, uh, you know, to encourage freedom of speech, to encourage democracy or mm -hmm. people to, 
you know, support and sustain and protect democracy? Um, should it be encouraging people to think a particular way so as to, oh, you know, a consequence of this may be that there are less spiteful and hate-driven posts on social media? Um, do you think, oh, even the government, should they be more clear about articulating what the ideal citizen should look like? Okay, two things. The university and the government will be different. Right. The university's obligation, in my view, is towards the mission of right. the university, and right. it should be encouraging um, and sometimes requiring that in any space, digital or real, on the university, that academic values are not compromised. Right. So I think that's an easier case right. in a way. So then we can say, what's the government's obligation here? Sorry, let, let me interrupt you just yeah. that really quickly. Surely there, in in pursuing the university's values, yeah. surely the university's values can be, you know, extended to the individual so as to be understood as promoting, you know, um, critical thinking yes. and that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, and, you know, surely if... Because, like, I'll have to admit, as a student of the university, it doesn't feel like... Like, I don't know what the university's values are. They, I haven't seen them anywhere. I think that's um, right. So that's one of the reasons I really want to have this conversation right. and I hope that, that at least some students will listen to it. I think we do need to think much more clearly about what the values of this university are right. and um, to generate a shared statement or a shared understanding of values because shared values make communities. Mm. Um, and my strong view is that those values ought to be academic values right. we're going to disagree on other things mm. like the content of justice mm. or fairness we're going to disagree and we ought to be disagreeing on a lot of big ideas but the thing that ought to bring us together is our commitment to the academic task right and we ought to be protective of the capacity of academics and students to do that and for everyone in the university who's a member of the community to be a, a full and equal part of it. Yep. That's that's all part of protecting university. So I think that, I do actually think you're right. We don't talk to our students enough about mm. it um, and we ought to. Right. And I hope that that will be something that, you know, the recent conflagration about academic freedom and freedom of speech on campus, I think will then ultimately be very productive if universities engage in that task. Mm. Don't just expect students to understand it, actually really have a conversation about it. Mm. Okay. Mm. okay. Um, and we're at 58 minutes, so if you if you need to head off, let me know. But Assange? Can we oh, okay. So Julian Assange, you wanted to talk about him. Let's yeah. just talk for just a couple of minutes. Okay. It's a, such a difficult case. Right. It is really such a difficult case. Okay. Let me try and ask you a question yes. because maybe that that will. Um, okay. If we if we are looking at the Assange case purely through the lens of, oh, actually, I'm not sure. Maybe I shouldn't limit it to freedom of speech because we know that. Um. You know, free, we, we initially we distinguished um, between academic freedom mm. and freedom of press mm. as, you know, having different... Um, and freedom of speech. And press freedom of speech, speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these things having different kind of um, uh, definitions. So, um, well, I'll ask you this. What do you think the issue with the Assange, with, with the Assange affair is? 
I mean, I think it's a beautiful illustration of the challenges of the modern era, right? right? Assange is not a journalist. He has not behaved like a journalist. A journalist would not engage in this sort of program of radical transparency, would not have endangered the life that he's endangered, would not have um, uh, uh, acted in this way. Uh, The old legacy media, and some people will think this bad, right? I don't, but the old legacy media would have acted in accordance with journalistic ethics. And that means that some of the information that came out would have come out and others of it wouldn't. Okay. And, you know, he certainly endangered lives, if not caused loss of life. Um, And I think that that's very significant. He also appears to have engaged in a game of favouring one political party over another in election. Again, not something that... um, a journalist in the old legacy media could properly do, yeah. though query they might um, might actually do it. Like the, I don't want to suggest that they always lived up to their values, yeah. but the value certainly was that there's a difference between a journalist seeking the truth and a commentator expressing an opinion. Now, Assange is not merely sort of like imperfectly living up to those values. They're just not his values. Mm. He's just not interested in that. He has this program of radical transparency. And he had the digital capacity, had the technological capacity to pursue it. So the problem that we have is that we have an old set of values about an old press dealing with this completely new thing. So my response to it is that I had no problem at all with charges being laid against him in relation to the illegal acts that he did to access information. Um, He wasn't acting as a journalist and journalists in any event don't ordinarily engage in illegal activity Mm. to get their information. Mm. But the second thing is what I think is the latest set of charges, the espionage charges, Mm. are actually more problematic because they relate to activity that newspapers do undertake, which is accessing and publishing information. And so, quite frankly, I'm not terribly concerned about him per se because Mm. I think that my own view is that this kind of radical, transparent release of masses of information probably does more harm than good. Mm. Um, But I still think what I think is problematic about this latest, more serious set of charges is that it's hard to distinguish why he's been charged and say journalists at the New York Times and Washington Post haven't been. Right, right. And I think that that actually does raise a question for us about whether he should have been pursued this way. Now, the Obama administration seems to have gone, been sort of reluctant to pursue those more serious charges mm. against him. And I think I probably would side with their approach to it over this more aggressive approach, which I think, you know, does endanger pr- media freedom and important values, mm. even though I have not much sympathy for the kind of assigned agenda in general. Okay. Okay, I think. Done? That's that's all. Thank you very much for coming on, Asian. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, again. Um, I hope you found that as instructive as I did. I thought that was an extremely useful conversation. Um, freedom of speech is a very, uh, in, a, in a democracy, um, as a citizen of a democracy, it is something that we must think about. Um, and that we must protect. Um, yeah, if you liked the interview, um, please, please get in contact with me um, somehow. I don't, I don't really mind what platform it is. Um, just let me know. Let me know that you're out there and that you're listening. Um, like you can send me an email. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever and tell me, tell me something. And leave a review on iTunes too. That would be pretty cool. Um, because, yeah, you know, like 
there are only so many times I can review my own podcast myself um, and tell myself that it's good because I need to be validated externally. Um, So please let me know. And thank you for listening again. And until next time, I hope you listen again. Um, Oh yeah, and who am I talking with next time? I should tell you that. I'm speaking with the band Good Morning from Melbourne. And Good Morning, uh, I speak with Liam Parsons and Stephen Blair. And they are two of the sweetest men um, I've met in a long time. And yeah, it was, again, I'm trying to make these conversations, um, yeah, nuanced and challenging and so I kind of pushed them a bit I I didn't want to ask them you know who were you inspired by like you know like do you play the guitar Stefan I didn't want to ask them anything like that um and so yeah I kind of pushed them and I was like how how has they've known each other for a long time Stefan and Liam and so I spoke to them about what it's like for them as two people who have known each other for a long time producing music in the same space and you know that kind of stuff so yeah and like you know I'm kind of introverted and they're kind of introverted and I spoke about what it was like what it felt like as an introvert you know performing in front of huge crowds and getting sampled by ASAP Rocky and you know the press and that kind of stuff so yeah it was a really it was a really interesting conversation so um you should listen and thanks again goodbye love Alex Mm -hmm.